Okay, we'll get this situated. Such a small group, kind of makes you feel funny standing all the way up there. How many, well, before we get going, I want to thank everybody for being here tonight. I know weather change, you know, like this, especially when it seems like it comes all at once, you know, summer drags out and drags out and then seems like it takes only a day and then all of a sudden we're feeling almost borderline into winter. But uh, and then, like last night, I know sometime through the middle of the night, if you're like me, storms really don't do you very good, so you got most of the night. But sitting out on the front porch there for a little while, probably somewhere around three or four, and one of the storms was coming through, but the lightning, the power that nature exhibits, that God exhibits, it's just truly, truly makes you realize that there is, there is a God. That things don't just happen by random. It's not like with creation of, war, of the world that all of a sudden, you know, equivalent to something just going bang and all of a sudden there's the Empire State Building. It just doesn't happen. There is a higher power. But tonight I want to talk a little bit about how people act. How many here tonight like to admit it when they're wrong? I know I, know I don't. I, I mean, I will, but I don't necessarily enjoy doing it. How many like to admit their faults to other people? I don't think anybody really does. I don't think it's, it's really human nature. No one really likes to admit their faults to other people, especially, you know, like I said, nobody really wants to admit it when they're wrong. But when it comes down to it, none of us are perfect. One verse that I just com completely become fond of is Romans 3.10. As it is written, there is no one righteous no, not one. But that's not to say that we should keep sinning just because no one's perfect. That's because the example that we're given, that pattern that we're to strive to be by. Matthew 5, 48 says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the pattern that we're supposed to strive to be like. This is the example that we're given to become like. But as hard as we try, we're humbled by the fact that none of us are perfect. We make mistakes. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But we know that as faithful Christians, we have that opportunity for grace and salvation if we follow that pattern that we're shown to follow. Ephesians 5.1 and 2 said, Paul tells us, Therefore, be imitators of God, dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Now again, I could go on and on with scriptures like that, but kind of a Sunday night, you feel like you're preaching to the saints. Plus, I have a limited amount of time. But we can clearly see from the scripture three things. One, none of us are perfect. 
we all sin. Two, there was only one who was perfect and he died for our sins. And three, that we are given an example, a pattern that we are to strive to be like. And that pattern, that pattern is the life of Christ. And I know there's a phrase you see a lot on social media, the back of windshields and bumper stickers that sums it up. It says Christians aren't perfect, just forgiven. Like I said earlier, I'm just like everybody else. I hate to admit my faults to other people. But sometimes when I'm trying to study a subject, I sometimes feel I struggle with some subjects more than other people do. That I have to study harder. I have to study longer. I have to study more than other people just so I can stay up. Usually those people are half my age. So maybe that does make a difference. But then there are those times that it seems that, and I know you've all had it, that moment where you just kind of have that proverbial light bulb go off, where all of a sudden, I get it, I understand it. For some reason, just it all falls into place what that instructor or that author is trying to say or that point they're trying to make. But also when it comes to studying learning, I feel like I'm a lot of people who are the type that if I can see it, I can understand it better. I guess I'm more of a visual oriented person when it comes to understanding things. But you show me how it applies. Show me how it works. Show me why I need to know it. Then it makes a lot more sense. You want to tell me a triangular formulation from a book? I could really care less. But you want to tell me how high this telephone pole is because I can count it by measuring the shadow and the angle of the sun? It makes sense. I understand why I need to know it. And that's the basis counted for tonight's sermon. That part, that understanding part of learning. The components of understanding and the components of learning something. One thing I did bring, again, I'm kind of a visual person. Piece of wood and a chisel. I'm not gonna stand that up because it'll make a really loud noise if it falls. We'll get more into that here in just a little bit. But that visual, that visual aspect of learning something. Now I know I've joked in, about in the past, I probably do every time, I'll have a complete sermon done. And later for some reason, I mean it may, I may have it done two, three weeks or a month or two months ahead of time. But I'll be studying another subject or I'll be reading a book, you know, by someone. And you just have that, that click where something, it makes total sense as to what the author's trying to say or what the instructor's trying to say or somehow that I missed his point. But you come up with that epitome moment. But that, that's, this lesson's no different. That sudden understanding that hit me that I had to add something in here, this visual aspect, that sort of makes the lesson tie together. And again, it'll make more sense as I go on. So what started this was naturally a piece of wood and a chisel was one of these wood carvings I'm doing, <coughs> plus one of the subjects that I'm studying, which happened to be Greek. 
Over the last couple of years, I've taken up wood carving for various reasons. I pretty much, I just kept it to myself just because I guess I'm a lot of, like a lot of people, I'm kind of self-conscious about my, about stuff that I do. But when it comes to this or to my work, I guess I'm a little paranoid about what people might say or what people might think when they see it. You know, the worst thing you could do is, you know, somebody look at it and go, looks good. Now what's it supposed to be? Yeah, that's just something you don't want to hear. Plus, I, I started this not necessarily to do any, to make something, it more was like a physical therapy. For me, it helps, keeps my hands movement, going at dexterity, uh, focus, concentration. But the biggest benefit I get is when I hurt, like when storms come through. It helps get my mind off of that and onto something else. And again, that's, that's where this kind of goes to. So I'm sitting there one night, and I'm pretty much staring at a piece of wood like that, thinking, what's it gonna be? What's, what am I gonna make out of it? I do this all the time. I just sit there and look at it. I look at the figure of the wood, I look at whatever, I look at, the, at a couple of designs that I've come up with, and just keep thinking the idea through and through. What's this thing wanna be? What's it gonna work out to be? because not every piece, not every piece of wood fits every piece of design. It just, everything has to work. It probably would work. I probably am just getting a little over carried away trying to figure it out. But, uh, sounds strange, but that's how my mind works. It works for me. So I keep looking at a piece of, of this wood and also a couple of the designs that I've got, like I said, and trying to see exactly how everything's gonna fit, how I'm gonna lay everything out, and how that pattern that I've made, that I'm gonna follow, how that is gonna transfer, how that pattern's gonna get transferred onto that piece of wood. Because once you get that pattern transferred on, then it's just a matter of a tool this just happens to be one that was extremely dull. Uh, didn't want to bring one of the sharp ones because they're razor sharp and I'd end up hurting myself. But it's going to take something like that. It's going to transform that piece of wood into something. But what I ended up thinking about was here's this piece of wood. It's not of much value. I mean, it, it does have some value. But when I get done, it's going to turn into something. Not for sure what, but it's gonna turn into something. So it's gonna turn from void, from blank, to a conceived idea, to a finished product. A process. I mean, it, it's, it's just, like I said, a blank piece of wood at that point. And I'm gonna take everything from some basic power tools to chisels and, like I said, I'm gonna transform that pattern onto that piece of wood. But it was that pattern that I kept thinking about. And that's when that epitome moment hit, pattern. You see the Greek word that we get our English word character from, it fits into this perfectly. The Greek word for, the, for our English word character, it comes from the Greek word, it's spelled C-H-R-A-K-E-R, character. And I mean, it's sort of the same thing. 
but it's meaning that I want to point out. Our English language, if you get the farther you study into that, our English language does not do justice compared to, to the Greek language. And as this is the case with most Greek words in the Bible, when we go back and look them up from the Bible, the Greek usually has two meanings. Just as the English language has progressed, so did the Greek. So you have an old Greek meaning and a newer. Take the word in the English language, gay. It has a totally different meaning from 40, 50 years ago than it does today. The same thing was true for the, for the Greek. So the original old Greek meaning means an instrument giving worth. That instrument referred to as a character. It conveys the idea that something of minimal value is transformed by a craftsman into something of greater value to give worth. Later, that word evolved in the Greek to mean an engraving or a carving. And even later, it was more accurately defined as a mold or a stamp, like a stamp used to make coins. So here's this instrument that a craftsman would use to take something of minimal or no value and over hours, days, weeks, months, however long, he would transfer, transform that into something of value. Basically, again, it's referring to a process, something that's going to happen over time, that a craftsman, again, would take this piece of wood or a piece of metal, and slowly, over that time, he's going to transform that work into a piece of art. Or maybe he will engrave it into a master mold that's going to be used as a stamp to make coins with. Either way, chip by chip, stroke by stroke, even sometimes as minimal as a small scratch by scratch, this craftsman's going to create something of value out of that blank piece. But it isn't exactly the way, isn't that exactly the way that a person's character today is formed? Isn't this true of the process in which our personality or our characters formed, act by act, deed by deed, slowly over time, event by event. This continues over time until we reflect the very pattern which we have followed or lived our life by, defining our character. I think what amazes me more than anything is how people will live their lives following whatever sinful pattern that they've chosen, forming their personality or their character. Then, when at some point things change, these people complain to God how they turned out. Even though the very same people who ignored every attempt by others that others have made to help them to change their sinful life, they still at some point want to turn around and blame the very people who tried to help them and blame God for how they turned out, for how their character turned out. They neglect the process which they decided to follow, but complain to God about the final product, or how a person can profess to be a Christian on Sunday morning, but live a life of sin for the rest of the week. Then they return the next Sunday morning, and they sit in a pew and sing, Lord, make me a servant. But they don't understand 
But what they don't understand is that their character was slowly formed over time. Bit by bit, step by step, event by event, they followed a pattern. And over time, they turned out in an exact image of that pattern that they followed. Now, I'm not talking about a person who repents and makes that decision to change their life for Christ. We can all agree that through hearing the word and belief in the word, which leads to repentance and baptism, that through, the, through this, our sins are washed away, as well as true for an errant brother or sister who repents. Their sins are forgiven. But in both cases of forgiveness, their life, that process that defines their character, their sins are forgiven. Also in both cases of forgiveness, their life, that process which defines their character, that process begins anew with that forgiveness. But what I'm referring to are errant Christians, for whatever reason, they refuse to repent. And again, on a Sunday night, you feel like you're, pre you know, you're preaching to the saints. But my focus here is preaching on the word character. What defines the character of a person? And how is that person developed? How is that person's character developed? And I think the very best person, that example of character, or how a person's character is slowly developed, is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's godly character. But was it that way for Paul for his entire life? What if we were somehow able to go back? Go back in time and talk to the Apostle Paul in his latter years of his life in prison and be able to go back in time again while he was in prison and ask Paul, Paul, do you still believe that you can do all things through Christ? I imagine his answer was bet would be, I, I sure do. What if we were able to go back in time a little farther when Paul was still Saul of Tarsus? Saul of Tarsus, do you believe you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? I imagine his answer, answer would be something like, don't be ridiculous. By the way, just who are you and where do you live? Because you know, I'm seeking out papers for people just like you. I imagine that's probably what his answer would have been or something to that effect. What about if we were able to, able to talk to Paul and ask him this same question, but during that period of time, after he was blinded on the road to Damascus, after he's heard Christ preach to him and was baptized, but this period where he departed to Arabia, as explained in Galatians 1, 16 through 18, if we were able to meet up with Paul during this time while he was in Arabia, and ask him, Paul, what about now? Do you believe you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you? This time, I imagine his response would be something more to the effect of, I think so, or maybe. I would think Paul at this time, he's probably totally committed to Christ at this, you know, at this point in his life, but he's still trying to figure things out. See, his whole life, he's been taught the old law, everything under the old law, extensively by some of the best teachers of the time. But again, what he was taught about was the law of the time, the old law. 
his education up to that point in his life would probably rival that of a person with a PhD or a doctorate in religious studies today. Paul's whole life has been turned upside down. He now has a, but now he has a complete understanding that Jesus is the Christ, the very Christ that they've been waiting for, the Savior. And for the last few years, he's been people throwing people in jail for this belief. He's even been there when people were stoned for this belief. Paul, or Saul of Tarsus, as he was known at the time, he was there holding people's cloaks while they stoned Stephen to death for this belief. I don't think Paul has any hesitation now that Jesus is the Christ at this point in his life. But now he is supposed to go out and preach the word of God. He knows that's his responsibility, he knows that's his duty, and he knows that's his right, is to go out and teach. But he's supposed to go out and teach this to the very people he's been persecuting. How is he supposed to do that? So yeah, Paul has to think things out. Again, character? Yes, no doubt. Character, Paul has it. Character of a person is a process. None of that happened in an instant. That process of how a person lives his life defines that person's character. It not only defines that person's character, but it also can have an impact on the character of our young people. It even plays a part in the development of the character of new converts. How we live our life not only affects us, but it also affects the people around us. You see, the Apostle Paul learned that through Christ, he was able to do all things. But Paul had to learn that first. It didn't just come into his head. The Lord didn't just open up his head and say, here, Paul, it is. here it is. He had to learn that. He had to learn the word he had to learn about Christ, he had to learn all over. But then, at that, after that, he knew that he was able to do all things through Christ. He knew that it was Christ who strengthened him to be able to do all things. But just like Paul, we have to learn that same thing we have to learn that same process. We have to learn his word. We have to learn his will in order to know how he expects us to live our life, how God expects to, us to live our lives. Paul, some would say he had to learn the hard way. Paul, however, later in his epistles would write that he saw this learning experience as a blessing that it strengthened him to be able to endure what was ahead of him. Again, we as Christians must learn, not just sit like a bump on a log, we must learn. Then, then we too will know that through Christ we can do all things. Again, it's a process. Just like that craftsman who takes that piece of wood or whatever, and through the use of tools, I mean, it might be something like that, 
and slowly chips away at it or slowly transforms that piece of work into, an art, into something of art, into something of value. But what makes, what about the mistakes? What about the mistakes we make in our life? I was asked one time about mistakes. Somebody asked, how big's your, well, I mean, what's your junk pile or your scrap pile look like, you know, according to like carvings? I keep every one of them. It's a sizable amount. But I do keep all those things that I've made mistakes on because it reminds me of the mistakes that I made on that particular piece, a learning process, so I won't make that mistake on the next one. How do I take and adjust from the first one, which, which didn't work, and adjust to make it work on the second one? Again, I don't, I don't think there's a better example of this than, than Paul. Paul made mistakes in his life. I make mistakes in my life. We all make mistakes in our life. To some degree, again, at some level and some degree, to different degrees, we all make mistakes in our life. And just like Paul, I'd, be, I'd love to be able to go back and, and take away those mistakes. But it's what we do with it. How we apply it to our lives if we learn from those mistakes. You know, early in Paul's life, he made several mistakes. Paul also writes several times later in his life how he persecuted the church. I'm sure that bothered him, but we all make mistakes. But it's, it's the process of learning from those mistakes that defines our character, just as they did for the Apostle Paul. Paul learned that the life he was living was wrong. His belief was wrong. Paul while he was still known as Saul of Tarsus, learned he was living a life of sin. Paul learned, Paul repented. Repentance, I think sometimes we get confused. I think we get misled. If we listen to TV evangelists or, or different personalities on TV and radio, if you listen to religious, religious personalities, they're gonna try to convince you that just because you feel bad, you're, you know, that's repentance. Repentance is not just feeling bad. Repentance is changing the way you live your life. Repentance is the act of change. Paul learned that. Paul changed his life and started living for Christ. And what a change it was. Could you imagine an early Christian and we do have an account of it, but you're walking down the street and here comes Saul of Tarsus. You see him at the last minute. You freeze, no place to go. You're dead, that's it. You're caught. He comes up and shakes your hand. He comes up and hugs you because he is now a fellow brother in Christ. And you're probably just standing there wide-eyed because you know this man the last however many years has been persecuting Christians. Paul had to overcome that. 
So much so, and part of that change was him changing his name. And I think that, that helped people understand not just the change, but that process of change. But yeah, Paul made a big change in his life. No matter where Paul was sent, no matter what happened to Paul, Paul took every advantage to teach Christ. What about when Paul was put in a jail in Philippi? By the next morning, the jailer was on his knees asking Paul what he must, be do, what he must do to be saved. That's godly character. Paul was brought before Felix and then before Festus. Paul, instead of begging for his life, he reasoned with them and preached to them Christ. One of them finally cried out away with him because he was scared to death of him. And the other asked Paul, are you trying to make me a Christian? You betcha he was. That's godly character. What about when Paul was put on a ship in chains? By the time it ended up, Paul was up there in the, in the wheelhouse with the owner of the ship. That's godly character. When they put Paul in prison in Rome, and he ends up with a direct line to the chief guard of the prison, that's godly character. There was something about Paul. It didn't matter the situation, good or bad, Paul was going to preach the word of God. Again, that's godly character. You know, Paul, in all, we need to realize Paul was just a person. Paul was human. But he was just like a, he was just a man, just like a person, just like you or I. When God chose Paul to do his work, I'm sure Paul was like, why me? But when God chose Abraham to do his work, Abraham was, you got the wrong guy. I can't go and talk, and I can't go do this. But God knew what he was doing when he chose each and every one of us. That process to learn, that process, that development that, that, that defines our character, that pattern we use to live our life by. Again, character is a process that over time develops our life into a reflection of the pattern that we use to follow. You know, I've had several times heard sermons, eulogies, whatever you want to call them, at funerals, that pretty much just states the sum of a person's life in the end is defined by that dash on a headstone between the date of birth and the date of death. What happened in the middle? Isn't that what we've looked at here, that process, that, that how we handle things, what we do, how we live our lives, what pattern we use to live our life, 
from this point to the day we die. And unless the Lord comes again before, you know, before we die, we're all going to have that dash. What's, what about that, that dash? What's it going to mean? What's it going to reflect? But more importantly, I mean, let's take, for instance, that, that date. If we start with a, say this, this would be a headstone. And I'm going to take and carve that date for date of birth onto this piece of wood. How many strokes does, I mean, how many times am I going to hit this? How many times am I going to push this? How many times am I going to chip away before I engrave that date into this piece of wood? I'm sure back before the invention of, of major power tools, it was even harder for pieces of marble, specialized tools. But the same way with, with that dash, what does it, what's it take? I mean, a lot of people think, like, I'll have people, come, when they see something, you know, like what piece that I'm working on, they always end up asking, where's the hammer? Where's the mallet? You really don't use one. If that's sharp, the instrument's sharp, then it's just little nudges. It's little pieces. It's little bits. I don't have to, I don't have to hit it. But isn't that how that's formed in our life? We don't, it's not just necessarily the big major events that define our life. It's those little times, those little nudges, bit by bit, step by step, event by event, that's what, that's what defines our life. It could take, for me, to carve some, it takes several thousands, or maybe hundreds of thousands, of, of times pushing on that chisel to make whatever it is, for it to come out to, the, to whatever it is that I have in mind. Our life is the same way. It's the slowly chipping away or those slow nudges till we get either a desired result if we're a Christian. All those forces, they're subtle forces. That the circumstances that make us who we are come from the pattern that we're following. If we choose to live a life of sin then when we have one of those little nudges, instead of turning to God, we turn to the world. You know, it's an easy, it's an easy road to go down to let those events in our lives lead us to a life of sin. It's, it's definite, the path of sin is definitely easier for wide is the path to destruction and narrow is the way. We know that. Some even let those forces lead them into a life of sin, but again, come Sunday morning, miraculous, miraculously, somehow they're converted and live Sunday morning for God. But then by Sunday evening, they're back to their old, old ways 
and in that back, back in that path towards sin. What does your character say about you? What would that dash look like? A life lived for Christ or a life lived for sin? Would it be like Paul taking advantage of every opportunity, even the bad ones, and using that opportunity to spread the gospel? And Paul, he used every opportunity. And even that all, with all that Paul had done as Saul of Tarsus, Paul was forgiven and Paul was saved. We all make that offer. We always make that offer. We all, we all make mistakes and we always make that offer for change. That change for repentance. That change that leads to salvation. You know, as always, and we always extend that offer to everyone who has any need, whether it's the needs of the church or whether it's the need to come and put Christ on in baptism. Those changes, that pattern that we live our life by. If you need prayers of the church or if you need to make that change, we extend that offer now as we stand and sing. <laughs>